Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Martin van der Veer has had a front row seat for some of the biggest economic developments of the last 50 years, both as a banker and as business correspondent for The Spectator, including under the editorship of Boris Johnson, and more on that later. His book, The Good, the Bad and the Greedy, argues that scandals like the missing of PPI, the fixing of LIBOR and the financial crash have eroded trust in enterprise, and that only a return to a kinder, more public-spirited corporate culture can fix it. It's both a defence of entrepreneurship as an engine of human progress and a criticism of a capitalist system that incentivizes personal gain above all else. I began by asking him if we really had lost faith in capitalism or if, aside from listening to this podcast, I hope, Britain never really had it in the first place. The subtitle of this book is How We Lost Faith in Capitalism. And that's an interesting proposition because it implies that there was some kind of pre-lapsarian state where we, where we all loved capitalism, it, it, you know, a period where we, we, we fully believed in it. it. Is that right? Well, that's, yes, yeah, very good, very good question because what that refers to, why we've lost faith in capitalism, is particularly we the British. And it would be fair to say that the period in which the British sort of really embraced capitalism was probably rather a short one. I mean, you could say um, around about the Great Exhibition and the time of Prince Albert, there was a sort of enthusiasm for mechanisation, for railway development, for industrial development. There was an admiration for a sort of new world of capitalist industry, but that faded pretty rapidly. And throughout the 20th century, my theory is at least that the the British have been generally suspicious of capitalism, hostile to the idea of profit and wealth very often, uh, and only began to change attitudes in the 80s, in the Thatcher era, when enterprise became something to be admired and entrepreneurs came to the fore in Thatcherite circles and so on. But then... That's a, culture, that's a piece of cultural history about Britain. It doesn't necessarily apply in America at all. Um, and there are other places where capitalism thrives, or did, Hong Kong, you might think of, Germany in a different way. And so, anyway, but then in the more recent decades, we, that means rather younger generations, lost faith in capitalism again because it behaved so badly. So... I write a lot, as you know, about the financial sector, but in lots of ways, 
uh, which we could go into. Capitalism stained its own reputation uh, against a background of a sort of long-term attitude of suspicion towards it from the British public. Yeah, and I want to talk about some of those kind of incidents and scandals you write about later on. But I suppose what I want to pin down really is, is I get the sense from your book that there is a period where things start to turn. And I think it's a period that you've also witnessed yourself in, in your own career in the city and as a journalist. And I feel like from reading your book that, that it starts with the Big Bang and the deregulation of the city. And that's, that's, I think, where you pinpoint things starting to go wrong. Yes, quite right. And this is a personal book and I was there. So I started work in the city of London as a young banker trainee in 1975, um, when it was still the old city and an older form of more paternalist capitalism prevailed generally, which you'll have noticed in the book, I rather admired. I mean, inside the city and outside it, there were some very, very good companies in those days run in a different way from the modern corporation. Then Big Bang came along. It was the process of reform in the city of London that changed the ownership. The big thing was it changed the ownership of stock exchange firms, stock brokers and stock jobbers, so they could be owned by banks. That means banks could form kind of conglomerates of securities business that in some way imitated the big powerful firms of Wall Street, which at the same time were coming to London, recruiting very aggressively and pushing up salary scales and introducing a bonus culture, a trading culture, a more transactional rather than long-term client related culture into the financial scene, a more short-termist response from people running large companies because they were desperately aware of how the stock market was reacting to their results and so on. And all of that, my long-term conclusion, I was there, I watched it, I saw the culture change, I saw people's behaviour change. Now here we are, 35 years later or so, um, I still think on balance that was um, a harmful thing for the culture of business in the UK emanating out from the centre, which was the City of London. And I've got to say, I mean, for someone like me, I was born just after the Big Bang happened. And this world that you describe of the city before it, this very, like, gentlemanly class band, well, there's an incredible quote in this book from, um, I think, Philip Auger, where he says that you could tell what a man's job by his shoes. It just sounds like such an alien world. Perhaps you could sort of just paint us a bit of a picture for our perhaps younger listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, and I'm not saying it was all a good thing because it was class-ridden, it was a closed shop. The reason Margaret Thatcher wanted to have a go at the city, as she did at so many other closed shop bastions, was she, she really disliked the sort of minor public school snobbery of, and complacency of the old city. Um, it's perfectly true. So in my early years, I was a, a junior banker at Schroeder Wag, which was an accepting house, which did a kind of 19th century trade finance thing called bills of exchange. That's what I was trained to do. And I turned up at 9.30 in the morning. I spent at least ooh, three quarters of an hour trying to do the Times crossword <laughs> after lunch. And we left at about 20 to 6, and we really didn't do a lot of work. They were all Oxbridge posh boys, one or two posh girls. Um, 
it was uh, a sort of oasis of privilege and entitlement and all that stuff. Elsewhere in the building, there were people doing some serious big takeover work and stuff like that. I don't deride it. Uh, and actually, Schroeder's was a very good firm and, and its successor firm is successful today. But, you know, it was a totally different world. When the Americans arrived, basically, in caricature, you then needed to be at your desk by sort of 7.30 in the morning, glued to screens covered in numbers, aggressively pursuing transactional business and and so on, and, and pushed on by much more aggressive bosses. And if you were good at it, you made money very, very fast. So when I started in the city, I think I was paid £52 a week. Um, and I had no very high expectations of getting rich from it. I really didn't. I just thought maybe one day I'll be a director of this highly respectable bank and that, that will be comfortable and pleasant. Um, by the end of the 80s, I saw an argument about the first guy. I was then working for Barclays, um, the, the part of Barclays that became Barclays Capital. Um, and I witnessed the argument about whether the guy in charge of the Japanese equity warrant trading desk, who'd made an absolute fortune because that market happened to be going up all year, could receive a £1 million bonus which was much more than the then chairman of Barclays Bank would have been paid. And he did receive the £1 million bonus, and so did quite a lot of other people, and so it went on. And the whole, the whole world had completely changed by then. And I must say, personally, I found it increasingly uncongenial and was quite glad to be out of it a couple of years later. And why do you think that that in the long term harmed the city? I mean, we're sitting here in the Centre for Policy Study, so I've got to stick up for Margaret Thatcher. Um, I mean, wasn't it yeah, essential? Me too, me too. Um, why did it harm the city? It, let's say, what did it do that was good for the city? It attracted by creating a much more globalised and tech savvy, you know, big trading floor style of operation in the city. It took the city from the 19th century to the 21st in a sort of rather cruel leap uh, and attracted in a huge wave of international investment. That is to say, foreign, foreign banks and investment houses coming in, being sure that they had a big operation in London. The whole growth of the hedge fund and private equity sector in London is related to the fact that it's where the money people are, it's where they meet for lunch. You know, it's an absolute entrepot and hubbub of financial activity and still a huge contributor to the British economy. And the, the modern city, that is what's left of it in the city of London and what's down in Canary Wharf or in Mayfair, is a much more sophisticated thing. So let's say that's all to the good. All, all I say is that the, the culture and the personal behaviour was changed for the worse, and that there were many aspects of the old city, largely um, run through partnership firms in which partners took the risk, they owned the business, they took the risk, they kept their costs low, they rewarded themselves and their colleagues well if they'd done well, but there was a very direct relationship. They were not employees who could kind of game the system work for one firm for three years, collect a big bonus and move to the next one, very much a feature of the modern city. Uh, the old city was capable of some very 
complex deals. The, the privatization of British Telecom I write about at some length because my father was deputy chairman of British Telecom and you know led the roadshows for that. That was the old city, it wasn't the new city. That was a lot of partnership firms and different banks in different places, beautifully coordinated, very clever, very creative. So the old city could do terrific stuff, but the new city is a much more you know, global financial centre. Yeah, and I think one of the themes that runs through your book is the sort of culture and corporate governments and, and how people have kind of lost touch, a sense, with their communities and with their clients. And I think you see this in a number of the scandals that you described that happened since the Big Bang. So we have, you know, the dot-com bubble, we have PFI, we have LIBOR. Do you think there's a thread that connects all those things? I think, first of all, in the financial world, um, I regularly borrow a phrase from Gillian Tett of the FT, who wrote a, a, a groundbreaking book about the financial crisis called Fool's Gold. And she was an anthropologist originally, and she wrote about the silo mentality of the city, that people captivated by that world, earning large amounts of money, sitting on trading floors, looking at screens, completely lost any sense of the real meaning of what they were doing. Um, and a, a sort of extreme example of that being the kind of hedge fund people who trade in soft commodities, soft food commodities, soya beans, rice, and so on. Who, there was a spike in those prices driven partly by speculative trading in 2008, which caused food riots in places as far apart as Venezuela and Indonesia and parts of the Caribbean and so on. And the guys doing the trading would simply be looking at screens. One pictures them in caricature on their yachts, looking mm. at their laptops, you know, and there are people hungry and rioting somewhere else in the world. So, so that silo mentality is part of the problem. There are a whole set of other things about large corporations if we move away from the financial world to the idea of the hollowed out corporation, the legalistic um, entity that a company becomes instead of being the paternalistic sort of regimental entity that, that um, from my childhood I remember Barclays Bank where my father worked or ICI where one knew lots of people who's fathers worked there or who applied for jobs from university there. Marks and Spencer, a wonderful company, uh, cared for its staff, its customers and its suppliers, gave value for money, paid a decent dividend, enriched its founding family, did the whole thing correctly. A lot of that got lost when we finish up with the hollowed out corporation that's basically just a small executive, lots of outsourced um, companies doing bits and pieces for them, lots of consultants, the gig economy, so half the workforce are just, you know, people working on either zero hours contracts or self-employed or something, but they don't belong to the, the company and the company doesn't care for them or about them. That's, again, a caricature, but there is a model of a 21st century company which is nothing like, in human terms, the model of the best 20th century companies. 
I think people listening to this podcast, I would hope in general, are, are fans of capitalism, or at least it's a, um, its ability to uh, to enrich and and uh, and uh, raise people out of poverty in general. Do Do you think that these scandals you describe are, are problems within of the system, or problems of capitalism, or are they abuses of the system? Yeah, I, and I do want to say that you know I too am a fan of capitalism. Uh, and I am especially a fan of entrepreneurship and the skill and stamina, determination, vision of the entrepreneur who starts a small business, perfects a product and builds a large business. And if he or she makes a personal fortune out of that, I say hats off to them. Well done. That's wonderful. Now you can be a philanthropist as well. <laughs> so I admire the whole of that. And I admire many of today's big businesses, especially the ones that do good research and development, let's say, especially at this moment, pharmaceutical companies, mm. what a you know contribution they have made to the world in the last two years. So yes, what a, a, of those two choices you just offered me, I would say these are aberrations, these are abuses of capitalism for which the ground happened to become very fertile in the last 30 or 40 years because of the um, greater and greater sophistication of financial markets and the greater differentials in pay so that people were tempted by, offered life-changing sums of money, which they could gain by often by behaving rather badly. Mm. And given that sort of choice, most human beings might be tempted to do it. So if there is a life-changing bonus, you might take the stupid risk, mm. c cut the corner, you know, uh, do something that is uh, an abuse of capitalism. If these scandals, what we're talking about, mis-selling, for example, this is a consequence of, ba of bad people doing bad things. Why then do you think it's resulted in a loss of faith in the capitalist system? Isn't this a consequence of people, not capitalism. Hmm. It is a consequence of people and I'm not necessarily saying it's always a matter of bad people doing bad things. I think very often it's ordinary people being tempted to do the wrong thing uh, by wrong incentives. Um, so for example enormous amounts of mis-selling personal pension plans and so on. doesn't mean there was a tribe of evil salesmen. It means that they were incentivized to sell a product that was a badly designed product and nobody from above stopped them selling it until it was too late, if you see what I mean. Um, I think that you can connect all this to why, when I say we've lost faith, who do I mean? I, I referred earlier to, in current circumstances, particularly younger generations, why have they lost faith or not embraced conventional capitalism? It's partly because they feel excluded, they feel the system is loaded against them, they feel that if they're coming out of school or college or university, the job market is um, very difficult to penetrate. Um, there are not the kind of opportunities and graduate training schemes, all of that sort of thing that applied in my generation. There are not hierarchical career paths they can choose anymore. It's very much a, a free for all kind of employment market plus they can't afford to buy flats. Um, they have a sense that the generation before them have, 
you know, wrecked the financial system, damaged the planet, created a circumstance in which they, the young, will have to work till they're 70, but they won't, they won't know even, you know, two, three, five years ahead where their income's going to come from, and they certainly won't have a comfortable pension to sit on. So in that sense, I can quite see why a whole swathe of young people um, who then on the, you might say, on the positive side, are also very energised about sustainability and, uh, and environmental issues in particular, uh, and equality issues, why they think the capitalist system uh, is doing them no favours. But I would like to come back again to the point that my book is a defence of capitalism. So where I come to on this is that um, it is about human behaviour. Most people are good or have the intention of being good. Um, and uh, the correction of the errors of the past period is possible. It's helped in a way by the pandemic, which has made people realise that there's something, you know, deeply unattractive about the extremes of capitalism, that short-termism doesn't help, that research and development is important, that, that trying to, to move from where we are to a better world through the use of capitalism is a very important, you know, set of tools, really, that, that um, we've seen how the pharma industry responded by creating and mass-producing vaccines in no time at all. During that same period, coincidentally, the automotive industry swung from saying, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to be building diesel cars for the next generation because that's what we're tooled up to do, to saying, no, no, actually, as a matter of fact, we can probably change all our uh, model ranges by 2030, at least by 2035, it'll be all electric. You know, we are investing in battery gigafactories. We can see this is the future and we are now going to move towards it. So um, I think we're in a better phase. And in some way, I think perhaps the, when history is written, the pandemic will be seen as a moment where um, big corporations realise they should be pivoting towards a better future. Yeah, and I, I want to come back to the pandemic and to sort of current politics as well. But I, uh, but I think, I suppose, suppose what you said about sort of younger generations not feeling that they can see the benefits of capitalism, that, a lot of that is to do with policy decisions, with things like the inability to build enough houses, with uh, changes to, to pension schemes. You know, how much do you think this loss of faith in capitalism that you describe has got to do with companies and how much does it have to do with governments? Well, so deregulation. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Of the financial sector was what catalyzed Big Bang and all of that. I think most of what I'm talking about is more to do with the way uh, corporate executives have behaved and the incentives that led them to do that than it is to do with government policy. I know it's a, uh, a popular free market line to say, for example, the financial crisis was Alan Greenspan's fault for, you know, for giving too much cheap money. Um, but still, you know, the traders and bankers didn't have to do what they did just because money was cheap, if you see what I mean. So I don't, I, I don't myself personally revert to criticising government for everything that goes wrong. Um, I think a lot of this is stuff that went wrong actually in the private sector. Government at certain times was uh, complacent behind the game. Um, you could highlight, if you like, Gordon Brown you know, going to Lehman Brothers headquarters to open it in about in 2004 or five and saying, I congratulate you on, you know, what you're doing for the world. Okay, politicians are misled too. And some policies have not helped with this. And you could say that the shift to the, the pressure, uh, the decision by the Thatcher government to, to push towards um, right to buy for social housing and personal pensions. And then what happens is the personal pensions are largely missold. The right to buy results in a first generation of people who buy their council houses and it's wonderful for them. But the, you know, the next generation of people who need social housing, there isn't any because it wasn't replaced because the local authorities who got the cash in from the sales, they spend it on something else. So we now have a total crisis of social housing. It's quite right. So there hasn't been long-term thinking and consistent policy in many areas of government, but I don't put the blame solidly on government. I think that's too too facile. Too convenient, yeah. perhaps, for yeah. free marketeers. <laughs> uh, I mean, but you do talk about some of the kind of other alternative models of capitalism, so what we used to call in the coalition era, the John Lewis economy. Mm. Um, and you have a good line about this to say, well, you know, if John Lewis is so great, why isn't every company a John Lewis? Mm. Um, perhaps you talk through a bit about some of the alternative models uh, of capitalism and why they don't quite hit the nail. Yeah. So my, my conclusion is that shareholder capitalism is the best mechanism we've come up with so far uh, to drive economic progress, prosperity, and broadly speaking, to drive well-being. But you might ask, why isn't there some softer, kinder, more communitarian kind of model? And as you say, 
John Lewis Partnership is one such model. It's owned by its some 80,000 partners who are people who work in John Lewis and Waitrose. Um, how was it created? Well, Mr. John Spedden Lewis, many decades ago, gave the business to his employees. He was both a very successful um, drapery store operator in Oxford Street and a, a visionary philanthropist. And so he effectively gave his fortune to his employees. And there are one or two other examples of very enlightened, successful businessmen who giving their businesses to their employees. One who's currently still active, a chap called Julian Richer, who I've recently come to know, who gave a large chunk of his retail electronics business to his employees. That's a wonderful thing. But you need a lot of philanthropists to do that. And then you create businesses which are owned by their employees. So they have a fundamental problem about raising new capital. They can't really go to the, to the market and raise equity to expand. Um, if they have a very bad year, sometimes they're gonna have to let some of their partners go. I mean, you know, make them redundant and so on. Um, they have to operate like fully commercial businesses under the constraint of being owned by their employees. So hats off to John Lewis because it has come through this crisis and it is still doing interesting new things. But there's only one John Lewis. The, the Building Society movement was a most admirable um, creation where people in the 19th century in local areas got together, pooled their savings and one by one were able to buy houses on mortgages out of the pool of savings they created. Then some of them, most of them became permanent and so on. That was a benign form of recycling of savings into bricks and mortar. Um, and it was, a, in hindsight, a great pity that demutualization offered cash payouts in the 90s that turned out most building society savers were, were just joyful to take the cash payout and they more or less destroyed the building society movement. There were 250 of them now, there are, there are 40 left. There's only one you could think of that's a really um, uh, national scale. That's the nationwide, still very good institution. So that went. The cooperative, I think, should be admired for what it does. But nobody's really creating new cooperatives. And if you look at what happened to the cooperative bank, which... You know, basically ran out of capital and stained its reputation and, you know, almost self-destructed. And it's still called the Co-op Bank, but it's got absolutely nothing to do with cooperative principles anymore. So it's just the kind of mess, really. I think we've got to mention Paul Flowers. What a character. <laughs> yes, well, there you are, a Methodist minister who chaired the Co-op Bank. Uh, knew nothing about banking and was was done over in a tabloid <laughs> scandal and um, yeah that that uh, the cooperative bank never recovered from that but it already had a huge black hole in its balance sheet and being a cooperative it you know uh, faced an almost impossible challenge to fill the black hole in its balance sheet that's really what wrecked it but Paul, dear think, old Paul Flowers made the headlines. Yeah. I think you're being very demure. I think we can say that the tabloid scandal was that he was buying cocaine off rent boys. Yes, two at a time. If you <laughs> <Yeah>. want. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about the sort of model of capitalism that you 
would like to see. I remember about this time last year, and this was a Zoom interview, Paul Collier, who I think sets out this, uh, he has this idea of a kind of communitarian style of capitalism that he thinks can kind of heal the rifts that we have in society. But perhaps you could talk a bit about where you think we need to go in order to perhaps regain that faith in capitalism. Yes, Paul has talked and written about a, a, a big swing back from individualism to collectivism that he would like to see and, and believes he can see beginning to happen and that that may be an outcome of the pandemic. I'm not sure I'm quite there with him, alongside him, ideologically. I think a lot of hope rests in the entrepreneur sector um, because I think entrepreneurs are on the whole surprisingly not driven by the urge to become very very rich. They are in my experience and I run the spectators competition for innovative entrepreneurs every year. They are driven by um, trying to perfect a product or a service and trying to make a big business from a small idea um, and their satisfaction is in achieving all of that and creating skilled jobs and funding research and so on for the next generation and if at the end of it they happen to sell the business and become very very rich that's good too but I rarely meet one whose prime objective is like that and because of what I described about the job market for young people and a change of culture in a positive sense, there is now, I think, much more excitement and interest amongst the sort of 20 to 40 year old generation in becoming entrepreneurs in working in small businesses uh, that might become big ones. And all of those businesses will talk about their um, social objectives as well as their business objectives. Um, so they want to be good corporate citizens. So I think that's the area where there's a lot of positivity. As I said earlier, I think a shift that would be really good would be back towards, first of all, bigger research and development budgets in big companies. Secondly, a much more conscious awareness of staff welfare and supplier welfare the era in which all of that could be shunned and delegated in the hollowed out corporation. I think that's now coming to an end. So I think we're moving into a healthier world from those points of view. Where I balk, where I stumble, as it were, is when you come across a whole world of they're mostly business school academics. Some of them are in um, think tanks, across the spectrum from yours, as it were, the centre-left to left think tanks and the business schools are all obsessed with purpose and the purpose-driven corporation. And uh, in many cases, they would say purpose before profit and so on. And you can go to whole huge seminars full of people discussing purpose and the metrics of how you might measure it and so on, the boxes that must be ticked to do with sustainability, welfare, equality, diversity, you know, gender diversity in the boardroom, all of this stuff. And they believe this is more important than the fundamental performance of the company to deliver profit and shareholder value. Well, I don't. 
I, I have argued against that. And I, I say a really good company uh, is actually driven towards profit and shareholder performance, but it does all that stuff properly anyway, because it's figured out that in the long run, that's what a good business needs to do to be sustainable and successful. And because the people in charge are fundamentally decent human beings um, and they are loyal in a sort of tribal sense to their company and they want to see it hold a high reputation and do well for the long term. So I think purpose sort of, is, I've described it as being like a mini with an enormous pile of luggage strapped on its roof. It's the tottering pile of luggage at the moment in the corporate world. Uh, and it's it's completely overdone. But the good companies do the right thing anyway, and that's why they are seen to be good companies. Yeah, I think one of the themes that I felt ran really strongly through your book was the importance of good corporate governments, of decency, leadership. Um, and I suppose perhaps as a final question, I, I think it's quite a pertinent time to be talking about that sort of thing because we're we're talking at a time when we're seeing perhaps a big problem of culture in Downing Street. How much do you think you can read across from the corporate world to the world of politics? I think we're seeing a, a most peculiar and extraordinary period of Downing Street life, which I can't really read across to the corporate world at all. I've never particularly thought about that. I, what I can tell your listeners is that I was appointed business editor of The Spectator by Boris Johnson when he was editor of The Spectator. He had absolutely zero interest in, in business or economics or the subject matter that I generally liked to write about. But I, I've always believed that the new proprietors, the, the Barclay family had just bought The Spectator, had probably said to him, oh, Boris, you haven't even got a business editor. So he rectified this by appointing me. But no, I mean, and if you'd ever w witnessed our current prime minister sort of when he was in charge of the 35 people who worked in the Spectator House in Doughty Street in those days, he was completely unmanagerial and unbusinesslike and no role model of any sort. I suppose you could stretch this to say, because he had no interest in it um, or understanding of how people run businesses, his contact with that world was minimal and was largely to do with taking money off them, as it were, for his speaking engagements and latterly for his wallpaper and stuff. Um, so he, he has not learned uh, anything from the world of business and the world of business certainly can't learn anything from him. But to be honest, I'm not sure how relevant that is to our, <laughs> the rest of our conversation this morning. I don't want to be too horrid about um, Boris Johnson. He's taking enough stick from everybody oh, else. Oh, really. yeah, bless him. So I suppose, I suppose what I what I wanted to perhaps round off with by, by talking about this is, is the importance of human beings really isn't it hmm. in a system that's really I think what what we what the central theme of your book hmm. yes it is and uh, I think yes it people generally as I said I believe tend to the good they uh, in their personal lives want to do well 
for their families, for their communities and so on, um, that people are not fundamentally dishonest, but they are fundamentally prone to greed. Um, greed happens, of course, people would like to have more possessions, have more wealth than they have. They have dreams of what they do with it and so on. And if they're wrongly incentivized um, and greed comes to the fore, then they start to behave worse. So I, I'm in favor of a gradual um, amelioration of sort of, of pay differentials in the corporate world. I think it's become completely absurd how much many chief executives and senior directors are paid relative to ordinary workers. I think that's, that's been a very bad thing. But no, I, I think personal moral codes are essential to this and are much more important than attempts to codify corporate behavior and strap it up in lots more regulation, lots more accounting rules that would give them more boxes to tick and so on. All of that will be grit and inertia um, in a system which needs to be encouraged towards, you know, the next generation of products, the better world that it's capable of, of creating. And I guess as a final question, how optimistic do you feel about the future? If we've lost faith in capitalism, do you think we can get it back? Yes, I do, because I think it will sort of repeatedly prove itself to be useful. That's the main thing. And the alternatives won't work. I mean, we know that. We just know the state, you know, and, uh, and socialistic forms of government interventionism in industry and so on. We've, all that's been tried through the 20th century and it's largely judged to have failed. So we are in the hands of, of capitalism. It can do extraordinary things. The advances of digital technology of the last 25 years are life-changing for everyone on the planet. In the next 25 years, it is capitalism that has to uh, achieve low energy, net zero, uh, better ways of building and insulating buildings, entirely new transport systems, um, all of these things. Um, and it's capitalism that will that will do that. It isn't governments that are going to do it. Universities will contribute a lot to that. Uh, the most important thing is the kind of nexus between universities and spin-outs and business and so on. Government can help. Research grants, low taxes where it, low taxes will help and so on. But government can never drive all that. Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and thank you so much for coming here in, in physical form. Well, what a pleasure for me too. What a pleasure. Yeah, well, I hope, uh, I hope your listeners enjoy that conversation and um, perhaps some of them will even enjoy the book. So thank you very yes, much absolutely. indeed for I inviting should, me in. I should mention the book The Good, the Bad and the Greedy, Why We've Lost Faith in Capitalism by Martin Van Veer, available in all good bookshops. I do recommend it. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection to find the person you can rely on, the one that's there every week, month, or year, and always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With ACAST podcast ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie, and avoid those red flags and time wasters. Your ads can communicate with them in the most intimate way possible. A one-on-one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym, or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started.